Okay. Any prayer requests tonight? Yes. Say your name again, please. Harold. Gerald? Harold. Harold. Yeah. My father, two days ago, was in a car accident. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's really okay. He's been in the hospital for three days because they're got a little bit of blood on the front of the back and the head and the brain. But there, it has not gotten bigger, so it's monitoring it. I mean, he's 84. So What's his name? His name is Harold. Sorry? His name is Harold. Harold? Anybody else? Yes. For our grandson, Ethan. Who Ethan. Who broke his, Ethan. Who broke his collarbone in the football game. So How old is he? He's 15. Boy. What's the prognosis? Good. Yeah? Is he going to play again? Yeah. Say his name again. Ethan. Ethan, okay. I've got to mention, some, yes. For Father Richard. For Father Richard? Yeah, we got an email today. Me remember no just um, let's start in the name of the Father Son Holy Spirit thank you again Lord for the gift of our life and the gift of yourself in mass um, this morning and through the week for your presence with us um, the words in the mass the words from you to us are always to be always and everywhere thankful no matter what a hard thing to do when we're suffering, particularly in family difficulties, uh, the burdens that we bear with each other. Our faith is that um, you ask us to do everything we can to love as you do, um, to make you real, not to, not to take you for granted, not to, um, um, not to presume on you, not to expect you to do something without doing something ourselves. You asked us to offer ourselves the way you did to us in everything we do. Strengthen us in our efforts to do that, to bring you to our world. But no matter what happens, help us never to forget, or if we do in trials, to recover it, that you are always at work. <laughs> you're, we are your children. There's no way if any of us think about what we try to do or the struggles we go through for our own children, there's no way you're going to abandon us. You're trying to protect our free wills, the goodness that you gave us, and everything you do. You allow these things. Our trust is you're bringing some good out of them. So in any ordeals, any sufferings we have to endure, help all of us to hold ourselves to that faith, doing everything we can ourselves with our own powers to do good. Um, to be you, but always to trust that you're doing something. Help us to bring that to everything we do in our world, particularly where it's not wanted. Ask a um, special blessing for um, Harold. Um, watch over him in his recovery from the accident. Um, let nothing happen to 
complicate or make things worse, um, help quiet his heart and particularly the hearts of those who love him. Um, watch over Ethan, that um, young boy. Um, heal him, please, um, in a way that will help him return to football and the things that he loves doing. Um, let this setback be um, a source of encouragement for him to, to know that he's to pick himself up, to keep going. That's what we all do. Let it be a good story for him um, to see how important it is to not let these setbacks keep us from continuing to go on what we do. And for Father Richard in his surgery, um, watch over him, protect him, um, keep him well. Um, where any of these things can't be, um, we ask that you do all you can um, to heal in these instances, but where they can't, let everybody um, see these difficulties as occasions for growing in their faith. And if it has to be entering a cross, and to know um, that, <laughs> that there is a great honor in going to the cross with you. So watch over all those people we care for and whatever other prayers were not expressed tonight, any, any prayers left in people's hearts. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. I've got to say something about prayers here. I meant to say it before, but let me say it now. Um, Um, one of the parishioners at St. Francis, who, who I think often goes to the website to listen to the audios that we take, um, had expressed her surprise because um, when she went on, she heard our prayers. I don't always catch them because I don't always remember to turn this thing on. Um, sometimes I forget. And, but, excuse me. Um, she was concerned because um, she knew that some of the prayers were personal. And sometimes they do get personal. I mean, some people have prayed for personal difficulties in their family. I mean, they, they can get pretty serious. There have been suicides, and I mean, you know, it's, it's the things we carry in our, in our Catholic communal heart. We don't live alone. We are a part of a community, so we bear these things. Anyway, she, she expressed some concern, and I've thought about it since, um, I think it was Friday morning. I don't want to stop prayers, because I think they're important, and I don't want to keep them off the web, because I, my, my assumption is that um, I've learned that people are going on the web to listening, who, who don't belong to St. Francis or Elizabeth Ann Seton. They're from all over the world. I'm really glad that they're available. I want kids to hear this more than, I want young kids because kids aren't getting this today in education. It's really upsetting to me. Um, and I'd be sorry to lose the prayers because I think it's important for a non-religious audience to hear. And moreover, if, if there's any intellectual credibility to what I do, that I'm trying to protect the intellect reason, it's, we're, we're asked to bring faith and reason together in our faith, that that's not a small thing for me. So I don't want to lose the prayers, but I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable and feel like they're giving something away. So what I'd like to ask tonight, just 
hold on to it. I don't want to stop the prayers online. I, I want them there so that people can hear them, particularly non-believers. If, if they think there's something really credible to what I'm saying, I hope it'll make it harder for them to dismiss prayers, that they'll have to think more seriously about them. That's my hope. Anyway, if you have any prayers that are personal and you'd rather not um, have go online, then what I'd like you to do is ask for the prayer if you're willing to share it here. And I'll turn the mic off for a moment so you can say the prayer, or I can say it, and then I'll turn it back on. Okay? If anybody has a problem with that, come up and see me after class, because I'm not, I mean, I've just been assuming it. We've been doing this for years, and nobody's objected, but... This woman raised a serious concern, and I don't want to treat it lightly. So I want to continue with prayers. If, if there's something really troubling, some people are a little bit embarrassed. I, I wish we would all have the trust to open our hearts for whatever they are. You know, sons on drugs or somebody committed suicide. We had a couple of suicides in you know, in the community a couple of years. So we've prayed for, I don't think there's anything we haven't prayed for virtually. I'd be sorry to lose that. But if anybody's concerned, I'm glad to turn off the mic for just a minute, okay, and then come back on. I, I, I don't want to discourage anybody. It takes a lot of humility oftentimes to ask for the hardest things. And I don't want to get in the way of that. Okay, so just, and if, 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 if you're troubled with that, come up and let me know after class, okay? Okay, so um, a couple of things. I'm sorry, the, the, um, Chris and Angela, because they came up after class and asked some really good questions. But um, I want to go back very briefly to pick up Merchant and um, Othello. Because we were left with some, what to my mind are some really troubling questions. Huh? Um, oh wait, we've got to do the, sorry, we've got to do the poetry. Can you pull out Mary? I don't want to forget her. One of the reasons I did this tonight is because of Helena. And I hope I can make the connection clear in a few minutes. But take out Gerard Manley Hopkins' two poems on Mary. I'm going to do the short one tonight. Okay, And I'm not going to comment on it other than to say it's a poem celebrating Mary. And it's important to see this because I think in our scientific world, um, how to put this? You know that when we, when we first started, I read those poems by Hopkins called um, uh, The Wind Hover and Kingfishers Catch Fire. And in that poem, remember, everything in nature speaks. The kingfisher, the dragonfly, the stones, the bell. Because in the Middle Ages, it was believed that all of creation was created by a god of love. And that everything in creation had a self. And I remember explaining that. We tend to objectify everything, right? It's an object of our thought, a tree. We carry that habit over into what we do with each other. Person, she, her, you know, we, we objectify each other a lot. The whole call from God is to love one another with the understanding that love is unitive. 
it makes us one. The ultimate source of that love is the Trinity, because we know, believe, far more than the Protestant, that there are three persons, the source of our being, when we're made in the image of God, if we're made in the image of God, we believe that God's not private. He's not the same God for the Jews or Islam because that God is isolated. He's alone, like he's in a desert. Yes? Our God's Trinitarian. There are three, one God, three persons. The Father's concept of himself is his Son. That's why he's not begotten. He's one with the Father from all ages. He was not made. He's one with him, eternal. The concept of himself, the God conceiving of himself, is his son, the word. The love between them is another person. It can't be anything else, because God is being. So there are three persons, one God. So if we're made in the image of God, we're gonna, this is all going to become clear, by the way, when we get to Dante, because Dante's going to make it clear everywhere. He, he's such a Trinitarian poet. Um, if we're made in an image, we're Trinitarian, even if we don't know that. When we get to Dante, I'll get into this more. But everything in nature is expressive of that Trinitarian nature. I'll go into that later, but everything speaks, okay? We live in a world in which we make things objects of our mind. We objectify things. The whole struggle in our personal relationships is to learn to get past that, our egos, and love, to be one with another. And that means taking on all the suffering taking on the disorders that we bring to each other, whatever that is. It's what Portia had to deal with. It's what Helena is going to have to deal with here. Um, and I'm trusting that all of you know that the men in these plays are not making that easier. They're all jerks. Um, um, huh? Steal. <laughs> Stop. Um, so um, Hopkins still had that mindset. He, he he saw nature as alive, reflecting, offering images of God, okay? And um, he brings that into its way he looks at things. St. Francis was the model of that. If any of you have thought anything about his like brother, son, sister, moon, there wasn't anything in creation that he didn't look at as a relative of his. Brother, son, sister, moon. He was related. He, he, he came before this scientific mindset that we've all stepped into. So brother, son, sister, moon. He loved nature. He loved the things of creation. And he brought that love of God to everything he did. Hopkins is in that same mindset, okay? It's the way he looks at nature. He did with the wind hover. He did with kingfishers catch fire. In, in his poem to Mary, he's celebrating Mary because Mary was the one who brought Christ to us. So he sees her as an image of everything affirmative, everything life-giving in nature. And that's why he associates her with May. And it's not just an association. He finds in her this tenderness in her heart to love life, to bring life into the world. So she's an image of this life-creating force, okay? So, Gerard Manley Hopkins, May Magnificat. And notice in the second line, May is Mary's month, and I muse at that and wonder why. It's not going to mean much to you. You'll just take muses meditating. But when we get to the epics in a couple of weeks, if you don't know it, you'll know it then. Every epic begins with a poet invoking a muse. Mimosine, the muse of epic poetry. 
So when he says muse, it, he's partly playing on that, that as a muse, as a poet, he's bringing her to us. Okay? He's not just thinking about her. And I'll leave it there. Um, Gerard Manley Hopkins, The May Magnificent. May is Mary's month, and I muse at that and wonder why. Her feasts follow reason, dated due to season. Candlemas, Lady Day, but the Lady Month, May, why? Fasten that upon her with a feasting in her honor? Why, May? Is it only its, its being brighter than the most are must delight her? Is it opportunist and flowers find soonest? As if May takes advantage of things by its nature and bring things into being. Come in. This is the literature's prophecy class. I have sorry. You'll find you'll find a lot of what we're doing has to do with serious things in marriage. <laughs> Candlemas, Ladies' Day or Lady Day, but the Lady Month May. Why fasten that upon her? With the feasting in her honor? Is it only its being brighter than most than the most are must delight her? Is it opportunist and flowers find soonest? Ask of her, the mighty mother, her reply puts this other question. What is spring? Growth in everything. Flesh and fleece, fur and feather, grass and green world altogether. Starred strawberry breasted throstle above her nested cluster of bugle blue eggs thin forms and warms the life's within. It's the mother sitting on her eggs preparing. It's the nurturing aspect of a mother, a woman. Um, already before they come into life she's doing what she has to do, right? I mean it's sort of stunning. I just think we take it for granted. Um, life doesn't just begin when the birds come out of the eggs any more than when a child comes out of a womb. The mother's been doing things, preparing. Some women fast. I mean, they talk to the child at night, you know. I can remember talking to our children in the womb and playing basketball while they were inside. Um, Throssible of her nested cluster of, of bugle blue eggs, thin forms and warms the life within. And bird and blossoms swell in sod or sheath or shell everywhere. All things rising, all things sizing. Mary sees sympathizing with that world of good, nature's motherhood. Nature is fecund, it's feminine, it gives birth. Their magnifying of each its kind with delight calls to mind how she did in her stored magnify the Lord. Well, but there was more than this, spring's universal bliss much had much to say to offering Mary May. When drop of blood in foam dapple bloom lights the orchard apple, and thicket and thorp are merry with silver surfed cherry, and azuring over gray ball makes, with banks and breaks wash wet like lakes, and magic cuckle call caps, clears, and clinches all. This ecstasy all through mothering earth tells Mary her mirth to Christ's birth to remember an exaltation in God who was her salvation. 
we've lost this sense that nature's fecund, that it's maternal, you know, it's a thing. But remember that um, Christ made everything. He's the word. He was the means of creation. So he's the source of it all. Mary brought him into the world. And in doing that, it was a reaffirmation of how earth is, is the, the pagans would have seen earth this way. They would have seen nature as fecund and feminine, lots of ways. But Christ just deepens all of that. So Mary is an image as a human mother but she's, always, she's also an image of, of, of something life-giving in, the, in the, uh, the, the feminine, the maternal qualities of nature itself. Um, we all know that nature can be treacherous. I don't want to romanticize this, because it can be. I mean, we have to be careful. But there is something life-giving in it, and she's the image of it here in this poem. He's celebrating it. So. Okay, very, very quickly. I want to do this as quickly as I can because I owe you guys time and I want to see if I can be better at getting this out. We talked last week about poetry um, and I, you remember, it was an important time for me. I hope, I hope it for you. I went through all of those passages in Othello where Othello was expressing his love for Desdemona. And, and, and I, I was trusting that hearing them, if you, you know, just to recall them to your mind, you would have felt the same thing you did when you read them. We're hearing a man express the most profound love possible from a man to a woman. I mean, it's, it's, he looks at her as an image of heaven in some ways. He loves her so much. And we know he's going to kill her. But I went back to that line where, he, where the confrontation, the beginning of the play takes place, and... and People are going to draw their swords, and he says, um, "Say it again." Put away your sword. Put away, and the word wasn't, but it was. Um, sorry, it was. Put away your bright swords, for the dew will rust them. Remember that. Hold on to this for a minute, because it's just a way I want to review this, because I, I don't want to lose the moment, because it'll be hard to find it anywhere else. Put away your bright swords for the dew will rest them. It's an expression of a masculine principle, I think. It's, a, it's, the, it's the principle of efficiency that I think men carry far more than women. They, they tend to work more in their heads. He's a commander, he's a soldier. He's, he's concerned about the efficiency of his men. No, no, no commander worth his salt is gonna to wanna to lose men. He's got, he's got a battle to fight. So this is a paradigm. It's a, it's a wonderful expression of something that goes to the heart of a warrior. Put away your bright swords, unless the dew rest them, okay? Now here's, and we talked about that. Either Shakespeare is embellishing. This is um, window dressing, right? He's covering up. I was wondering where you were. <laughs> Don't think you're going to come into this class late and get away with it. <laughs> um, I'm glad you're here. I hope you're okay with my humor, God. Um, um, is Shakespeare window dressing? Or is he embellishing? Which is what lots of philosophers say. They're fictions of lies. He's making all this stuff up. I don't want to raise that question. And I'm, I'm going to 
offer my thoughts because I believe in them so profoundly. As you know from what I said last night, I think what Shakespeare's doing is expressing sentiments that Othello, with his own words, his limited education, could never express. What I was suggesting is that there are sentiments at the heart of every one of us that we find hard to express. I gave you the example when I, when I first met Suzanne and I was writing these cards on library things and, and I could never find the words, you know, I mean, we, when we, it's never easy. Men can bring flowers and, and still know that it's not going to say enough. Um, um, and I'm hoping women will know that if they don't bring flowers, it doesn't mean they, I, I don't want to get into that here, um, <laughs> dangerous territory. Here's what I want to say tonight. Um, put up your bright swords, lest the dew rest them. Those are the words of a poet. Either he's window dressing or he's saying something Othello himself could never express if he were left to his own words. Remember he said, rude of speech I am. He's uneducated. He doesn't belong to this Venetian world. And I hope it's clear by now, with, with all the education going on in Venice, these are well-educated people. Nobody in Venice, with all their education, in however articulate they are, could ever express those sentiments. So what he's doing is this. He's expressing the purity that exists at the center of a soul of a man's heart. The purity of that. Now, the reason I want to say that is it's going to go to the, a point that I'm going to come to in a minute. The Protestant believes nature's depraved. I'll come to this a little. The Protestant believes nature is depraved, that the effects of the fall are complete, that we're depraved, we lost our free will. That's Luther, that's Wycliffe, it's us, it's all of them. Okay? The Catholic does not believe that. The Catholic believes we are wounded, but the goodness that God gave us is still essentially intact. Will it get us to heaven? No, it will not. But we're not depraved. So a Protestant enters the world believing the world is depraved. It's a horror. It's only by virtue of a faith that he can mitigate that. For Shakespeare to say, put up your bright swords lest the dew rest them, either he's window dressing or he's expressing something pure at the center of a heart that a man without poetry could never get to. Is that clear? It's like he's taking us there beyond where words can go, where I'm going to say only the word in all of his goodness rests. And the claim that I'm making is Shakespeare knew that. At the center of every man is this great goodness. We can lose it, we can become evil. I hope and trusting we all know that. But nobody could say that unless he had this profound goodness hidden at the center of his heart. Put up thy bright swords, lest the dew rust them. And I, I don't want to go through all the other passages that I read, but you remember them and you can go through them yourselves. Is everybody clear? It's as if there at the center of our souls is this great goodness and we can't get to it. The poet helps us to get there. He helps us to feel these things and to see them. Because if we're left to our own eyes, we won't. We're still left in Plato's cave on surfaces. Is that clear? This is not small. I've got to, is it, is it clear? Yeah. It's, it's something, it's a glory to be thankful for. And this is in the man who's going to kill his wife. So I'm not trying, you know, I don't want to, but I'm just saying that if we know that, it increases the intensity of the tragedy. That's how extraordinary Othello is. Shakespeare's showing the very best of a man. 
He doesn't have the words to express it, but he gives him these lines. Either he's dressing him up, or he's showing that there's a nobility to this person that's beyond whatever his culture gives him. Is that clear? It's not a small thing. It's something we can only get in poetry. And who wants to read poetry in our world? So, okay? So first thing, just that once again, it's an affirmation that their poetry is giving us something that other kinds of knowledge don't. It's gonna deepen our sense of goodness. It's gonna deepen our sense of tragedy because this is gonna be lost, okay? So that was the first. The, just a quick review. Remember that one of the things we saw in Merchant of Venice was how important Portia was, and I'm, I'm suggesting that she's the most Christ-like person in the play because she brings justice and mercy together. Now, I want to reinforce this today because I, and I'm maybe getting out of line here, but give me a second here. I believe it's one of the most serious problems in our culture and one of the most serious problems in our family. Remember, she has to hold the letter of that law. She has to keep to it. She can't break it because if she does, Venice goes down. So on one side, she has to protect Shylock. She has to hold a bond. On the other, she's threatened with giving it up because the Christians say, show mercy. If she does that, the commercial regime is gone. We've been there, right? Everybody's clear on that, I hope. If I can just extrapolate from this for a moment, what she's showing is we have to learn to hold boundaries. We cannot let boundaries go because I think everything in our culture tends us to do that. We have to hold boundaries. But the question is, can we hold them without getting self-righteous or condemning? Because you know when our kids do something or somebody, somebody we love does something, our first instinct is, how many of us are good at not being self-righteous or proud when somebody offends us? I hope I'm speaking a language here we all know, because I'm thinking about our families, how hard it is to discipline our kids or how hard in a marriage you know, to, we have to, what Porsche is showing us, we have to hold boundaries, but the question is, what's the spirit in which we bring, we bring to them? Self-righteousness? Are we gentle when we should be? Can, do we have a sense of humor? Are we capable of getting stern when we have to? Does Portia let anything having to do with her get in the way of what she does? Absolutely not. When she comes to Venice, she puts on a man. That is, she effaces herself. She gets rid of her, everything in her of a woman. You remember, before she left Belmont, after the ceremonies, the ordeal, um, Bassanio risks everything. He gives everything up to risk. His life is going to go. He's going to lose everything he doesn't. So he's willing to risk his life for her. As soon as he makes the choice, she gives everything of hers to him. He says, take everything. Go back and look at the lines after that ordeal. She says, all that I have is yours. So we're watching in that couple as the two of them being completely self-sacrificing. He who ventures all he has, that was at the center of the caskets, that's at the center of this play, he who ventures all he has. Because it's only in doing that that we bring Christ to what we do. What did Christ say? Love the way I did, give up everything. So we have to, we have to learn to die to ourselves, to get rid of ourselves. What, we're, what we take away from the play is that Portia does that, and we see the dangers. If she, if she holds to the law, she'll be in a Jewish world, self-righteous, vindictive. 
So the danger for us is when we hold the boundaries, what we're saying is, look how good I am. Don't do this to me. I mean, too much of ourselves gets in the way. We get self-righteous, proud. Am I missing? Is this, are you all following? The danger on the other side is letting them go. Because it seems, it's, it's much, it seems better because it seems merciful. It's not. St. Thomas, mercy without justice, this is St. Thomas, the center of our church. Mercy without justice is, a is the mother, mother of disasters. We let our pity get in the way and we keep letting people get away with things. What's the problem with keeping, continuing to get away with things? Bad habits form and we have to hold boundaries, laws, because of the protections they give us. They help us overcome our weaknesses. The problem is, what's the spirit that we bring to them? What we see in Portia is something Christ-like because she's not letting anything in herself get in the way. She's putting herself away in order to achieve this. And I think what we're learning is nobody can do that unless they put themselves away. How well does any of us do that? Speaking for myself, I, I know how hard it is and I know how often I fail. Okay, are we, okay? So that was one of the things we took away from Merchant, that, that there's this, that in the seemingly nothing act, Christ is there in what she does. And if we take that seriously, it, it poses a challenge to us. Can we do that in our everyday lives? How do we do that at home, in our work, okay? The other thing that I left everybody with is that we, when we come out of um, Venice, we see it's the woman who takes care of this problem. The men, <laughs> I, you know, why are they so cavalier? Why are they so light? What's going on? It's a real problem. If I, to put it more sharply, Antonio would not have been in the situation that he was in if it weren't for the lightness of the men. Even Antonio. He was willing to risk that. So there's something very cavalier about men. Remember, remember, I read those lines a couple of times. Bassanio said, um, I don't want you to do this. Um, my, I would give up my own life and even the, the life of my wife you know, to get you off of this. And Bassanio says the same thing. And Portia says, your wife would not be glad if she were by to hear that. You remember? And then Nerissa does the same thing with uh, Graziano. So the men seem very cavalier. No, no, sorry. Seem very noble. Look how good I am, I'm willing. They seem like men. I mean, what man doesn't want to be noble? Um, men want to be noble. Um, is everybody following? The men want to be noble. But we see that there's a cost to that. The women are closer to the truth of things, more down to, I mean, you, and you know, when the men get home, the women, I mean, very charitably, they're very good in what they do, take the men apart. We're not going to sleep, and we're going to sleep with those men and let you, you know, until we get these rings back. So they let the men have it. Um, God, I hope I don't start any fights tonight at home. <laughs> okay, let me stop with Merchant. Any questions? I don't want to spend, I really want to get on to Othello and then get to All's Well, because we've got to get to this play. So there's something in woman because she stands outside that Venetian world. Remember, the Venetian world is given to power, wealth, control, getting ahead. Um, anybody who steps into that world begins to define their lives that way. Portia stands outside of that. 
And don't forget, it, it's because of her obedience to her father that she learns to put herself away. So when she comes into that world, she's bringing something that that world itself can't offer to put yourself away, to love that way. And, and, and remember how active it is. It's not passive. She's using all of her powers to bring a justice out of the problem here. Okay? So it's an extraordinary play, and it reveals us a lot about our own world today and the problems we've got um, on a daily basis. Um, those of you who are married and have kids, you already know. Um, and I'm sure the wives know how cavalier men can sometimes get. I'm not going to go to the other side of that with my wife here. To <laughs> <laughs> Any questions before we go? To, I just want to quickly pass to Othello, and then, and then I want to get to all's well. Is everybody okay on Merchant? I hope you enjoyed it. It's a great work. Porsches are wonderful. Huh? A wonderful example for all. Yeah. Remember in Plato's cave that Plato said, it's only the poet who can show the very best of us and the very worst. And it, to me, she's one of the most extraordinary images of the possibilities for a woman. As I don't believe men can do that. I think there's something fundamentally nurturing because she comes from outside that world. It doesn't define her. It doesn't limit what she does. Um, and we're going to see the same thing with Helena here. In Othello, we saw the tragic aspect of Venice, and what we see is um, how much it's like Venice in Merchant. It's given to money. Remember, it opens with Rodrigo saying, I've given you my purse strings. Why haven't you done this? Because the measure of worth in Venice is money. I trusted you to, to support my case for Desdemona. Why haven't you done it? And then they go um, wake Brabantio up. I read those passages last week, didn't I, when, when they come to Brabantio and he says, what is this? This is um, Venice, this is not a Grange. Mm, did I not? I thought, yeah. Um, remember when they go to alert him that his daughter has eloped, Brabantio is um, outraged. And he says, what tellest thou me of robbing? This is, this is Venice. My house is not a grange. Iago says, Zounds, sir, you are one of those that will not serve God if the devil bids you. I think we did this, didn't we? Yeah, okay, good. Because remember, what, what that implies is this, is, this is the city of law and order. These things don't happen here. And yet it just happened. But in his whole mindset, he can't allow for that because this is the rational regime. This is the regime without God. This is the regime of law and order. Um, he says he had this dream. He would have denied, he wouldn't have given it a thought if he didn't discover that Desdemona had done. And then he Iago says, Zouncer, you are one of those that will not serve God if the devil bids you. They don't want to hear, he, Brabantio doesn't want to hear what he doesn't like. If he's dealing with people he doesn't like, he immediately assumes the worst of them. We talked about this, right? How, how willing are we to hear people we don't like? There may be something that they're saying that would be good for us. God may even be speaking through them. So Venice in Othello is the, the regime of law and order and respectability. And remember when they set the guard, the Turks have already been defeated. That's the great irony. They were defeated at sea. Othello sets the guard perfunctorily. He's just doing what a commander does. And I asked the question, where are they looking? 
They're, they're looking outside. They're not looking within. They should be... Who should they be on guard against? They think the enemy's the Turks. Nature took care of the Turks. They should be looking inside, and they're not. And it's interesting to see what they do look for, because remember, um, Cassio's embarrassed because of his drinking. And at the end, when the plot with Iago goes bad, remember he, he told Rodrigo to go kill Cassio, and Cassio came out of Bianca's place, the prostitute. When, um, when Rodrigo attacks Cassio, and there's that fight, and then Othello gets into it, the first thing he says is, they, they were at that whore's house, that prostitute's house, because he's appealing to their sense of moral outrage that, that a prostitute would have been involved. So where are their condemnations? Drinking, prostitution. This is the moral, modern, respectable world. What's wrong with the modern, respectable world? There's an evil going on right underneath them that they're not seeing. Okay? So Shakespeare's showing that there's something dark going on in, in uh, Venice. And I think one of the questions that I left everybody with last week was, what is it about Venice that allows this evil, that gives evil such an open door? Because there's almost nobody in this play that Iago doesn't manipulate. It's, it's Shakespeare's way of saying, evil's affecting every one of these people and they don't even see it. So if Christ is present, you know, where? What's going on here? There's this evil here. So, and I ended the, the, our, our time reading the end, and I think I asked you those questions whether um, Othello was damned, didn't I? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just want to go back um, to look at the end again um, very briefly. Did I, did I ask the question, how are we to understand what happens with Desdemona because we think she's dead and then suddenly she seems to awaken? And she says, um, or who did this in, um, with the Mulian and Desdemona says, nobody, I myself, farewell. Commend me to my kind Lord. Do we talk about that? Okay, good. So I want to go back just to this last question. You remember when, he's, when he is over Desdemona, knowing that he's going to kill her, um, he looks at her. She starts to, to protest and say, let me live a day, I think believing that something's wrong and she'll straighten it out um, because he's assuming that Cassio and she have made love. They haven't. Um, he's going to kill her. And there's that moment in that exchange um, when he says um, what she's saying seems to imply that what he's doing is murder. And he's troubled because in his own mind, he thinks what he's doing is um, an act of justice, okay? And there's that confusion about that reality. And to finish our work on Othello, I want to go back to that. So um, um, he has killed her, and things begin to unfold. Amelia has come in. She's seen Desdemona. She screams. There's all that commotion, and she accuses Othello of, of making a huge mistake, and then he, he tells her what happened with Iago and, and the hanky, and um, Amelia's stunned. She, she, there's that section where she goes, my husband, my husband, my husband. It's, it's a moment when you see a wife 
I want everybody to honestly think about this for a moment, because all of us have these moments. We'll see it in the epics everywhere. We have these moments where we think we see everything. We're going along in our world, and then suddenly something happens, and we realize we didn't see what was going on at all. Our son was on drugs, or you know, our, our Aunt Mabel ran off with some, you know, who, whatever it is. Um, for a moment, it's like she's out of the action. She's not even engaged with what's going on. She's puzzling. This is the man who was her husband, and she's putting it together. This man has committed these evils, and she, she's his wife. She didn't even see it. So she goes, my husband, my husband, my husband? You can see her putting it together. And then, remember, Iago kills her, and Othello tries to kill him and doesn't. But there's this moment when... Um, Othello says this, he's warning Graziano and says, I have a weapon, but you don't need to be afraid of it. Nobody's ever defeated me. He's not even going to use it in Graziano. He has no interest in fighting. He realizes what he's done and then he says this, tis a lost fear. It's, don't worry, it's pointless. Tis a lost fear. Man but a rush against Othello's breast and he retires. Where should Othello go? What does this man do when he's just realized he's killed the only important thing in his life? It's as if he stopped becoming a warrior and he became a lover now that he killed his beloved. What's there to live for? Everything that defined him as a man is gone. He's absolutely alone, isolated. Where should Othello go? Now how dost thou look now? O ill-starred wench, pale as thy smock. When we shall meet at Compt, the moment of reckoning. This look of thine will hurl my soul from heaven and, see, and fiends shall snatch at it, cold, cold, my girl, even like the chastity, O cursed, cursed slave. It's him. Whip me, ye devils, from the possession of this heavenly sight. Blow me about in winds. Roast me in sulfur. Wash me in steep down gulfs of liquid fire. O Desdemona, dead, Desdemona, dead. Oh, oh, moans. Um... Rodrigo, or Iago's brought back. Um, they're going to send Iago and Othello to jail, knowing that there will be some great torment for Iago because of what he's done. And just at that moment, Othello says this. And I want to leave with this and then ask you these questions and take a minute and we'll get to all's well. Soft you a word or two before you go. I have done the state some service, and they know it. No more of that, I pray you, in your letters. When you shall these unlucky deeds relate, speak of me as I am, nothing extenuate, nor sat down aught in malice, then must you speak of one that loved not wisely, but too well, of one not easily jealous, but being wrought perplexed in the extreme, of one whose hand, like the base Judean, Judas, threw a pearl away, richer than all his tribe, of one whose subdued eyes, albeit unused to the melting mood, Drop tears as fast as the Arabian trees. He's not used to weeping, crying, this man. He's been a soldier. Drop tears as fast as the Arabian trees, their medicinal gum. Set you down this. And say besides that in Aleppo once, there a malignant and turbaned Turk beat a Venetian and traduced the state. I took by the throat, this turban, Turk, I took by the throat the circumcised dog and smote him thus, and he kills himself. Okay, now I want to stop for a minute before we go because I want to try to do as much credit to 
tragic, and I want to speak to tragedy in a second, but um, any questions about that? I, we, I, I enjoyed the few minutes we gave. Um, let me just ask the, one of the more important questions for me. To go back to what we talked about, is Othello damned at this moment? He kills Desdemona. Is Mike here? I don't see him tonight. Sorry he's not here. I don't know if you remember his answer last week, but... I'd say it's not because he genuinely repented. Just where's the repentance? Catch it. Where can you, can you pick it out? Where? Uh, he invites justice for himself. It's, it's not just that he's forlorn and sees no uh, use of his life. He's applying justice to himself. Yeah, yeah. But I say he is. Why? Because, Go ahead. Okay, because like the base Judean threw a pearl away, I thought of it like the parable of the pearl being, um, you know, sell everything else and keep it right. safe. Right, it's like right. It's Christianity. Right. And when, Othe when Othello killed his wife, he killed that Christian part of him and threw all of that away, and he deserves damnation. Okay, now go back for a second. It's Chuck. Yes. Because Chuck just said, um, I don't remember that he was repentant, so he was accepting justice. So, um, how would you answer that? Well, he's accepting the justice which he deserves, which is to go to hell. Helen, <laughs> 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 oh sorry. Ask her. He just killed her. I. Of course not. She committed adultery. What's? <laughs> Reconcile. Sorry? I say, what I can't seem to reconcile yeah. when I read uh, yeah. towards the end is that he never showed mercy. So when his wife asked, like, can you kill me tomorrow? Mm -hmm. No, I won't. Can you kill me? Blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, can you give me an hour so I can pray? Right. And that's really what struck me. Right. It's like he wouldn't even give her that one hour just so she can pray. So... Even though, like, the entire play, um, you know, he speaks all these beautiful lines of love mm -hmm. and so forth, they're just something that just irreconcilable to his action versus what he professes. I mean, in Venice, um, Antonio showed mercy to Shylock. I mean, he could have done him in right. if he wanted right. to, but he did But he still held the law, too. They bound him to the law. Correct. Right. But he did it in a way where his daughter benefited right, from his crime as opposed to just kind of putting him away again. Yep. Yep. So I, I just don't see Othello as being a um, admirable or even sympathetic mm -hmm. character because I just felt like he never showed any type of, um, you know, that mercy. I mean, after you commit the crime, and then you say, "Okay, you know, um, I." Sorry for what I did. Right. Forgiveness. Uh. It's like you didn't do it when you counted. Like you didn't give her that one hour, even. So that I don't know. To me, yeah. It's so very yeah. Any? It's Mary. Uh, yes. yes. He said, I'm doing this out of honor, not out of... Justice. He killed yeah. Desdemona out of honor. Mm -hmm. Well, honor for who? For her or for him? Mm -hmm. Right. He, to me, he was thinking of himself. And he also said, when you write down these things about me, tell about all the good deeds I did, 
do not uh, of one who loved well but not wisely but too well right. so to me he's thinking about himself right he didn't say, by the way, just because I don't want to lose your point, but be careful, because he didn't say, write all about these good things. What he said was, speak of me as I am, nothing extenuate, nor sit down odd in malice. He's asking everybody to be impartial. What he's saying is, because he knows there are extenuations to this, he's, he's admitted, we know it. He didn't do this out of, in a sense, like most tragic heroes, because he went after something and there was a flaw. His fault was that he let Iago work this and he knows that some people would find extenuations in that and let him off so he's not saying remember my good deeds what he says is speak of me as I am nothing extenuate don't um, don't let your awareness of what Iago did keep you from bringing down all the justice you can on me because I deserve it he said, nothing extenuating, nor set down anything in malice. That, that is, don't go after me for the wrong reasons. Then must you speak of me as that loved, not wisely, but too well of one easily jealous. You know, he's going on to say, but. So he's not saying, hold on to my good deeds. What he's saying is, um, r um, don't let any extenuations keep you from bringing a, a serious judgment. Because he's made it clear in the lines that I read before that he's ready to accept hell here. So. No. no, I mean, I, I don't, not to my knowledge, no. Anybody else? Hmm? There would be a lot of dead royalty. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> They'd be killing each other in that case. To just. I still don't understand, okay, why Shakespeare wrote this particular play as a tragedy. What were you supposed to learn from it? Being that he's an author, they always tell a story. There's a beginning, middle, and end, okay? Mm -hmm. Tragedies and ending. Is he supposed to talk about how bad the times of Venice are at that time? No, no. Let me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to that because I want to, as soon as we get through, go ahead. Right. Right. When he dies, when they meet, will she condemn him? Will she be angry? Will she be upset or not? What's the answer to that? I think no. No. Yeah, I think so too. She's made it really clear. Um, she doesn't. Let me just offer a thought, and then we've got to get on it. I'm going to try to put this in the form of a question, but it'll sort of give away my own position on this. Actually, it leaves me with a. I mean, I've got the same questions, but. Um, when we do the Iliad, we're going to enter a book. This is pre-Christian, by the way. And my belief is God just didn't come into the world when Christ came into the world. He was always there. You know, the Jews know that from the Old Testament. So Noah and the patriarchs are... God's never not been here. In the Iliad, we're going to watch all these men killing each other. One of the interesting things about it is that these gods are involved with everything that goes on. All these Olympian gods. So they're aware of gods interacting with their lives when they're on a battlefield killing each other. There are times when I try to contemplate what goes on with God when I watch gang members 
you know, kids who've been raised in gangs. I'm not sympathetic to gangs at all. I mean, I'd like the severest kinds of punishments for them, but, but I'm also aware that if you've grown up and you're not aware of Christ, um, and you don't know him, I mean, it's hard for me to believe most people in gangs don't, haven't heard of him, or, but, and they've got this instinct, I believe that there's this natural good in all of us, no matter what we go on to do. But one of the things to keep in mind with Othello is that he comes from a warrior class world, a culture. He's, a, he's not a thoughtful person. And it's a world in which honor means everything to him. I mean, it's who he is. Um, from a Christian perspective, there would be criticisms of that. Um, we know that he's entered a Christian world because there's that line that Iago speaks where he talks about Othello giving up his baptism. So we know that he's entered a Christian world. How long he's been at it, I mean, it, it seems to me that it can only be a short time. But he's, he's a warrior. He's very much like Macbeth, for anybody who's read Macbeth. Um, he was worked on by this guy. What Iago did with him was so beyond anything Othello had ever worked done in his life. He's noble enough, whatever his faults, he's killed his wife, he's noble enough to see himself going to hell. I mean, he's accepting um, he, he can't see himself accepting anything less than the worst kind of torment because he's killed the, the most precious thing. His soul, the, um, the, the, what's the word, that, the, the soul the, of great price? Um, what's the, threw a pearl away. The, the pearl traditionally in the literature that Shakespeare would have known would have been his soul or, I mean, you throw your soul away, and for him, in killing Desdemona, it was his innocence of destroying himself, throwing his own soul away. So we're, we're, we're left with a man um, who was this extraordinary figure who enters this world and is led to do this stuff against everything in him, but he does it. Um, he's an extraordinary man. Um, Shakespeare's showing the bet put up your bright swords, I mean, go through all the lines. He's an extraordinary figure, and we're watching him worked on with this evil and, and brought to a point. Does that let him off the hook? No, it does not. Does Othello want himself to be let off the hook? No, he does not. He does everything to make it clear he wants justice. There's things about send me to hell and let the... the you don't, you don't usually find people, you won't, when we do Dante, you won't find anybody in hell Who's, who's aware or who admits their sin. Because the, the condition for going into purgatory, as we understand it, is acknowledging your sin. The person who denies it or makes excuses is cutting short purgatory. The fundamental truth at ours is Christ said repent. I mean, that was fundamental. To, he started his mission that way. That it's only when we admit or acknowledge those sins to ourselves, so long as we make excuses for them, we're in trouble. So Othello's not covering himself up at all, anywhere. And when he says, extenuate nothing, what he's saying, don't let me off. So here's my question. Um, it's e we saw from Portia, it's easy to make black-white condemnations of people. I tried to get down to as basic a level as I can. When our kids do something wrong, we can overlook it, we can come down with them, you know, crack hammers over their heads. Um, the, the difficulty for all of us is how do we hold a law and love at the same time to bring love? That is to get ourselves out of the way 
and however we hold on to that law because it will ask everything of us. And what we see in Portia is she can bring so much because she was given so much in her upbringing. That's, that's what Belmont is. Othello doesn't have anything. He's a warrior. And here at the end he says, extenuate nothing. And then he says, set you down this and say besides that in Aleppo once where a malignant and a turbaned Turk beat a Venetian and traduced the state, I took by the throat the circumcised dog and smote him thus. Who's the Turk here? And who's the Venetian? Huh? Flesh it out, Helen, can you? What's, what does he mean here? What's he saying in this, in this passage? He, this, these are his last words before he kills himself. So he's the Turk that uncircumcised? <laughs> well, set you down this and say besides that in Aleppo once where a malignant and turbaned Turk beat a Venetian and traduced the state, I took by the throat the circumcised dog and smote him thus. Go ahead. So would, would the Venetian be his wife? Or, I mean, or is he killing a Christian part of himself? Or punishing it, yeah. Yeah. Is he is so? Here's the question. It can be. It can either be Desdemona or it can be himself, the Venetian. Set you down this and say besides that in Aleppo once, where a malignant and turbaned Turk beat a Venetian and traduced him. So in some sense he's saying Iago because Iago is the one who beat him, Venetian. And he took him by the throat, the, the, the circumcised dog. It can be him, because he, remember, he was more, um, but he's become Christian. So he's entered a Christian faith. So what he's doing is taking the Turk in him and killing him. So one of the ways of an understanding this end is that he's taking the worst part of him and killing it in an act of justice. Now hold on to that, because it seems to me this is a really... This, and because Shakespeare goes to depths that ordinarily I don't think most of us we can look at this in a black-white way Porsche's encouraged us out of that you know, we can condemn it, we can let it go you, we know that Shakespeare's going deeper um, he's taking, one way of saying this he's taking the worst part of him that killed Desdemona because the Venetian can maybe mean her or it can mean him that Iago took him and he's taking the very worst part of him and killing him so what he's doing is, with some part of himself, taking justice on the other part. And he's made it clear that he's concerned that if he goes back to Venice, they may extenuate it. Because once people you know, bring out everything that Iago did, because, and particularly because of the value of Othello for this regime, they'll let him off. So, so here's my question. Is this an act of justice or not? One. So that the part of him that wants to take justice because he's concerned that it might not be done is answering justice here. The other is, so in which case there may be something really noble here and maybe even Christ-like. I want to be really careful. This is, 
But, so I want to ask that question. How do we understand this moment? What is, what is Othello doing? And, and moreover, I asked the question last week about Desdemona. Is he damned for killing her? Number one. Number two now, is he damned for killing himself? And I want to add to this. Is what he's doing like what Judas did or different? Are his, is he doing this in despair the way Judas did or not? And I want to be really careful here because Shakespeare in these tragedies is trying to take us to really obscure depths that as humans we don't see very well. If a fellow goes to his maker the next moment, what's Christ going to say to him? Condemn him? Show mercy? How do we understand this moment? Is he damning himself in this act? Is he like Judas or is he not? Is he doing this in despair or his, are his motives different? So take a minute with that. And as soon as you guys settle that problem, we'll start all's well. <laughs> I'm trying to make this, keep it from being as easy as I can. I'm trying to make this as hard as I can because I think this is an extraordinary play. And I think what we're experiencing here is really, it's like what Portia did, but this is a tragedy. It's, it's, it's looking at the very best of a man and dealing with a killing that he, he absolutely regrets to his soul. He wants to go to hell for it. And um, takes his own life in the next act. So it seems to me we're looking at something terribly profound. Helen, go, go ahead. I, I could be really off base. I, when I, I, the way I interpret that is he kind of saw himself as the Turk, right, before, before he converted to Christianity. And that's the part where he wants to smite or like kill. Right. And, and I think he kind of blamed that part of himself for committing the murder. <laughs> and maybe sort of realized that maybe he was not fully practicing that Christian faith that he had. Could he, at this point in his life, given his background? Don't forget, this is an immigrant. This is a guy from a brutal land. He's lived in a warrior code. He's lived as a warrior all of his life. We're asked to make judgments. God, I mean, Christ is God's going to make judgments all the time. He's come from this world. It's a warrior world. He's just entered Christianity. He's newly a Christian. And so he's, I mean, to me it's extraordinary. He's an immigrant. He comes from a barbarian world. He's into what we, this is the great irony. One of the, he comes into what seems to be this Christian civilized world. And we're, we're, Shakespeare is showing it. It's not as Christian as it appears to be. A great evil's at work. But he's come, he's a soldier. He comes in. He's recently Christian. So we can't forget that, whatever we say about this moment and his Christian faith. I feel like he's Sorry. that. Sorry? I think I felt like he was recognizing that at the end. Yeah. That he's not quite, you know, thought that he was, that that, that, that Turk, that more part of him, you know, that um, non-Christian part of him is more of him than the Christian part. Yeah, and could, I mean, it's just when I think about this man, if any of you, it, it, you know, when you look at your faith, any moments of struggle in your faith, and you reach a point in your life where you realize, you really didn't know at some point what you thought you knew, you know, and 20 years later you look back and you're sort of embarrassed. We, so often there's, 
there's a lot about ourselves we don't see. You know, um, I, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll turn it over in a sec. I'm so grateful. This speaking personally, I'm so grateful. We, I told you, Susanna and I converted, and um, I was raised Greek Orthodox, which sacramental religion, but we converted Catholicism. I'm so grateful that God has given me the time that I've had. The thought that I might have died 15 years ago, even when we were in the faith, knowing what I know now, just humbles me. You know, that, because as the longer that we live, I'm assuming for most of us that take our faith seriously, the more we grow into it, the more aware we become of how much we didn't know, how much we didn't love as well as we thought, or... Um, Othello's on that verge. I mean, he, this is a, an outsider coming into a world, what pretends to be a Christian world when it isn't in lots of ways. Doc, you've, sorry, Bruce, or Chuck, sorry. I just wanted to say, and this goes back to what you said, Helen, earlier. Um, when he first speaks to Desdemona before he kills her, um, he says, confess. One of his first questions is, have you prayed tonight? Right. And he says, yes. And he says, if you haven't, cleared your conscience completely, if you've still got something on your conscience. Do it now. Do it now. And um, he says, be brief, I will walk by. I'll, I'll leave you alone. I would not kill your soul. And then she says, heaven have mercy on me. And he says, amen to that. He wants mercy for her. And he says, and I can't, I've been listening to the conversation, I can't find the... Um, he says it again, um, that he doesn't, he, he wants her to go to heaven, he does not want He wants justice, and I'm glad, I was, actually I was going to say that before Suzanne, when you, but I didn't want to interrupt, but, but he's doing all he can, I mean I want, I want to try to put the, I want to be as detached here as I can, he's doing everything he can in his own mind, you, you know, if, if you haven't confessed to it now, because in his own, I mean we've got to see that, whatever our predispositions towards men or women or moments like it's an awful moment. In his own mind, he's convinced that she's a whore. He's, in his own mind, I want to go back to this thing. I, we don't have time tonight. This whole question about proof, that is, I mean, when, when I look at it, and, and I associate this with a regime, and I think w when you turn away from God and you put everything on your mind, how susceptible your mind comes to black-white judgments, to condemn or, you know, let off or... He's doing all he can in his own mind, whatever the shortcomings, to, to take care of it. But, Chuck, you, let's do, and then I've got to stop because I've got to... I was just going to say it's pretty clear that he stays Christian to the end because uh, he extricates that part that he, that he hates. Right. Himself and, and he, he invites. Right. Right. I just like to leave this open to everybody. I'd like everybody to s seriously think about this I, I, and be wary of black-white judgments. There's a serious question, and I'm almost frightened to say this because it, it so goes against confession, whether something Christ-like in him that's been horribly wounded and that's still doing something for himself isn't attempting to rectify a justice in the only way that he knows. And I don't want to, I'm not saying this to let him off. I am not. It's just that the depths of torment and the depths of love are so real and so wounded here. And I'm trying to imagine Othello facing Christ you know what Christ would say at this at this moment, the moment of Comte when he's imagining meeting, because he wants to he wants to be thrown into hell. Anyway, I want to leave I want to leave this if we can leave it here. I think these are really important questions for all of us. 
because we're looking at the depths of souls, the wounded part, lots of us carried profound wounds, and um, leave you with that. But, but the, the, and I'm going to wait until next week because I want to get a quick start and all as well. The, the, the overlying question, the one that I wanted to take some time tonight, and I'm going to take a few minutes next week. What is it about Venice that lets this evil work the way it does, that causes these kinds of wounds and this kind of suffering? What is it about Venice that seems to invite, to make an opening for Iago to do this? And it, it's got to be clear. We are watching a man manipulate this world because of its own predispositions. We've talked about this. He's working on what they want. He's using their world, what they're committed to, or he couldn't be as successful as he is. What is it about this Venetian world that is so given to wealth, money, image? And remember, um, Iago pulls on, puts on this play, this plot, and it convinces Othello. It just, he says, this is the proof I needed. She's, she's adulterous. She's playing with me. She's, she's having this affair with... It's a play. <laughs> God. Um, it's a play. It's, it's Shakespeare putting on a play. It's a, it's a man so taken by a play that he's convinced enough by it that it, it finally settles the question. What is it about this regime? If we look at, at, its, at, at, at its susceptibilities, what it seems to be so susceptible to, that it makes the place that it does for this evil. I, I don't want to put Othello away until we looked at that question. So, so next week we'll take a few minutes. I just want to take a, a very quick few minutes because I want to get everybody out of here. I owe you time. Are you in the right place? Are you back there? Okay. Because somebody came in earlier looking for a, 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 group, a group. Okay. Um, can we leave it here? And I just want to introduce some things in all's well. So we'll spend a couple of... Okay, quick, very quickly. Shakespeare was aware of um, a number of movements that have already taken place that have already radically changed the world. So he's past that point, let's say, that Chaucer was at when Chaucer was already recognizing that a Christian Catholic world was passing. Okay, I want to just name three. Um, one of them was the Copernican Revolution. Copernicus had discovered that the sun was at the center of the universe, not the earth. So Shakespeare's writing at a time when this great dislocation is taking place. The world is unsettled. The entire world was modeled on the Ptolemaic scheme of things. The earth was at the center and the planets revolved around it. Copernicus recognized that was a mistake and he saw that the sun was at the center and the earth actually took its place out among the planets. And because it did, you could study it. So science comes into existence as we know it today. And you know that sciences rest on determinisms, necessities, what can't be other than they are. That's the basis of science. That's why it's predictable, right? It's a law. It, it rests on determinism, things that can't be other than they are. That's why we can know them. That's why we can predict them. Freud's going to go so far centuries later that he's going to say the determinisms inside the human soul are polymorphous, perverse, and the Oedipus complex, that they determine our characters. Okay? So science has entered the world, and it's, it's overthrown 
the structure on which everybody based their knowledge. So it was a time of great questioning. It was a time of um, profound skepticism. It was a time of questioning authorities, even the church. People even began to disbelieve in the church because up until that time, part of the church's authority rested on the Ptolemaic scheme. If the Ptolemaic scheme was wrong, what does it say about our faith? Everything was thrown into question. When periodically we go through times like that in history, and when we, when we go through times like that, something always happens, it's the same. When those moments come, when a worldview is being questioned, people began, begin to question metaphysical realities, the deepest things. So they stop taking things for granted, they look at the depths. So it's in moments like that that radical changes take place. That's what's taking place now. This is where Shakespeare's writing, okay? It's the Renaissance, it's the beginning of the modern world as we know it. So the Copernican Revolution was one. Machiavelli was another. He'd read Machiavelli. And if you know Machiavelli, you know that he's making the argument that for a prince to get a hold of his kingdom, he can virtually use whatever means he wants. The ends justify the means. It's a technical rationalization of politics. It's reducing politics to a science. It's a technical rationalizing. If you want to gain control, then you can justify whatever means you use to get to that control of the state. So the, the state takes on a superpower, okay? The ends justify the means. I, I believe that that's been our world for 300 years. The state justifies so much of what it do. And when that happens, people become expendable. You can justify using them. It can be, think about the wars, outposts in Afghanistan or Benghazi or you know, go wherever you want, where um, stupid things are done that cost human lives. Um, States will always go to war. Soldiers are going to die. That happens. There's a difference between people going to war and having to die and people, being, people losing their lives because of stupid things people do in the interest of state. That's a different thing. The third is the Reformation. And um, I, I've touched on this a number of times. I want to just be explicit with it for a second. All the great reformers, Luther, Wycliffe, Huss, um, Calvin, all of them denied man's free will. All of them said the, the effects of the fall, the consequences of the fall were complete. That man had lost his free will, it's only by God's grace that that free will can come into play again. So their image of man is that he exists in a state of depravity. Virtue is not possible, he has no free will. Remember I mentioned in Dante, the virtuous pagans are at the top of hell. They're not punished because they're virtuous, but they're not in heaven. So the Catholic belief has been that man is wounded, not depraved. That's fundamental. Our, our, our attitudes, I remember that was what I was trying to go to before when Othello says, put up your bright swords, lest the dew rest them. Nobody could speak those words who didn't have this extraordinary purity of heart who saw some goodness innate. Or another way of putting it, he's not, I'm going to say, I mean, somebody may argue with me, he's not acting that way because he's under grace. He's doing what he naturally does as a soldier, but he has this amazing, uh, he's, he's an extraordinary person. 
So we've entered a world in which um, science has become um, more important in people's lives. Um, um, modern politics is becoming an established way and the Protestant Reformation is coming. If you know the reformers, you know that Luther took away most of the sacraments, Calvin did. Um, um, the other one, whose name I just mentioned, I'm forgetting right now, did too. Huh? Micah? Yep, thanks. Called the Morning Star. Um, think about that. Because now it's no longer your own act of choice or your own free will and how you move with or without God or refuse his promptings. It's, um, you're depraved. Um, when you take away the sacraments, you take away a whole miraculous element that's seated in the church. In the middle of all's well, Lefeu's going to say, miracles are a thing of the past. Helen's going to perform a miracle. She's going to save, she's going to heal the king. And anybody who watches it's going to say, a miracle just happened. But they live in a world in which miracles are denied. So we've entered the modern world in all's well. Okay, now remember, Machiavelli, the ends justify the means. What's the title of this play? All's well that ends well. It's an echo of Machiavelli. So one of the questions we have to ask when we look at this woman, because she does extraordinary, she's like Helena, in some ways, to me, even more extraordinary. Um, is she a Machiavellian woman? Is she a modern woman? You have to read the play to find out what she does to see it, but that's going to be a serious question. Now, last thing, and then stop. One of the great issues in the play is the relationship between virginity and lust and marriage. I mean, put virginity and marriage, okay? One of the themes announced in the opening is Helen's virginity. Parolis is going to talk with her about her virginity, and he's going to try to talk her out of it. Say, so the only way you bring life in the world is by ceasing to be a virgin. Um, and Helena says, we're going to look at this very closely because it's, in a, it's, it's a telling speech. She says, not my virginity yet. And then she says, um, she will, in my Lord, in my Lord, he will find this, this, a mistress, a captain, a servant. A, she will make this long list. What she's saying is the man that she loves, Bertram, who's a scoundrel, is going to find everything in her. So prior to the act of marriage, in her virgin state, we see this wholeness of love that she brings to everything she does before she gets married. That's an extraordinary thing because we don't see it in any other Shakespearean heron. So virginity is a really important thing here. Parolis is trying to dismiss it. Parolis, a man of words. The clown is going to say, I'm getting married. Why? Because I want to save myself. Because if he knows he doesn't get married, he's going to be lusting around. So we've got a cynical view of virginity, and we've got a cynical view of marriage. What is Shakespeare doing with this woman who's going to do all these extraordinary things? In, in Merchant, Hel um, Portia came into that world for only that one scene, really. The action of this play is going to be conducted by Helena. We're going to follow her from the beginning to the end. Um, it starts in a court. The court is dying. It's in decay. It's corrupt. It's a, it's a class stratified. It's an aristocratic. Um, people of one class 
frown on marrying beneath them. Bertrand wants nothing to do with Helen because she belongs to an inferior class. She's going to go to Italy. What's happening in Italy? The, re or the Renaissance is taking place. It's Rome. It's where these new communes, the commercial republic, the Venetian world as we know it, has been introduced into the West. She's going to go to Italy. When she comes back, she's going to do something extraordinary. You have to read to find out what. <laughs> See you next week. We'll pick up with all's well. And we, I want to take a few minutes with this question on uh, Othello, but uh, we'll pick up here. Well, she said, nobody, I myself. She said, who, said, and he says, who did this to you? She says, nobody, I myself. But could that also be um, thought of as a recognition that she made the wrong I don't think so. And she says, bid farewell to my kind Lord. You weren't here when we talked about it. God, I'm so sorry. The, the serious question I have about it's it's a it's a, an amazing ending, Helen. Um, it, it, here, here's, here, let me give you my take. Hold on. I'm going to do this quickly because I want to get out of here. Um, um, 